Hello and thank you for joining us. You're listening to Words of Welcome, the teaching ministry of Welcome Baptist Church, Heathfield. There are so many times that I preach the pulpit with fear and trembling. Whenever I do that, I'm encouraged by a story that Spurgeon told about a young man who boldly, uh, with his chest out and his chin up, uh, went up the steps of the pulpit to preach his message. His message was uh, a real nightmare. It fell flat. Nobody was touched. And the poor boy walked down the steps, dejected. Spurgeon went to him and said, son, if you'd have gone up those steps, the way you came down, you'd have come down the way you went up. And I think that's a deep truth for all of us who want to preach God's word, who want to teach it. It is beyond us. There is nothing I can say. There is nothing in my eloquence, my gifting, that can fully explain the majesty, the beauty of who God is. And that's my subject today. Who is God? It really is perhaps the hardest question to answer simply we have a whole bible and the bible teaches us line after line who god is it does it in statement it does it in story it shows us how god deals with humanity a humanity that is off to stumble ready to rebel And time and time again, we see God in action. And to fully explain who God is, I would need to read the Bible cover to cover to you and apply it. But you haven't got time for that. I haven't got ability for that in this short time. But I want to try in the few minutes ahead of us, to look at this question, who is God? While it is perhaps the trickiest question to answer, it's also the most important question to answer. A.W. Tozer said that what we think about God is the most important thing about us. And that's true, because what we think about God will will change the way that we live and treat people. My great friend and mentor, John Colwell, said what all theology boils down to is this. Who is God? So what? Who is God? What does it mean to me? What does it mean to us? What does it mean to the church? So though it's a very hard question to answer, it is an incredibly important question for us. 
So I'm just going to look at a, a few aspects of who God is. I'm going to do that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The very first verse we're going to look at is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, most philosophies in the world talk about the world being in some kind of circular history, some kind of thing where uh, things are always repeating. It's, it's been a, a benchmark of philosophy, certainly in the ancient world and even in our, in our modern world, where we tend to think what has been will come again. These things keep flowing just as rain flows from the sky into a river, into the sea and back up into the clouds and rain. So history will keep repeating itself. Many uh, philosophies include the idea of uh, reincarnation, that we die and, and we'll come back and things will just keep going. Even in science, we see this idea of an expanding universe that one day it will shrink again and all will be repeated, some kind of massive pendulum. But the Bible introduces us to a beginning. Actually, the Bible introduces us to an end, a beginning where God creates everything and an end where God is going to put everything right, a beginning and an end. In the beginning, God this one we are introduced to in the very first verse of the Bible, who has no beginning and no end of himself. He just is. So when Moses said in Exodus chapter 3, who are you? Who shall I say sent me? God answered, I am. Tell them, I am has sent you. I am. I am the one constant of the universe. I am the ultimate cause. And I am the eventual end. I am. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word created, as it appears in the Hebrew, bara, only appears when talking about God's action, God's creating. It never appears about our creating, human building, making. And the reason is, is very straightforward. When God created the heavens and the earth, he had no raw materials. There were no ingredients. When you make something, if I make something, I have to have the materials. I need the ingredients. But God brought everything out of nothing. So the first thing that we want to say about God is that he is creator, God. 
We also want to say about God that he is deeply relational. He loves his creation. In fact, we understand as we read the whole book that God needs nothing. He doesn't need friendship. He doesn't need love. But the overflow of his own love was such that he made creation. He made human beings. It's an incredible thing. So in chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 26, God says, let us make humanity in our image. It's an incredible phrase. Let us make humanity in our image. Let us make man in our image. God uses the plural of himself, Elohim. Elohim. It's God's. It's plural. Now, many people give many arguments of why that may be. The most simplest, the most honest, the most genuine answer that, that I can give you simply is that because God is three persons in one being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our God is triune. He is a trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And God, without beginning, without end, who has been in a community in one, a, a, a divine dance, G.K. Chesterton said, of adoration and glory and worship. This overflow is such that God himself decides to create a world, create people made in his image. The Bible goes on in chapter 2 to tell us how God relates to his creation. He walks with them in the cool of the day. He gives great gifts to them. They have all of this creation, the Garden of Eden, to enjoy and to work and to care for. And in the midst of the garden, he gives them a command. Not only do they work it, not only are they to be fruitful, watch over it, that's our original work, but they are to not do one thing. Anything they can do, but one thing. They are not to eat of a particular tree. The knowledge of good and evil. And so here they dwell in innocence and love and fellowship with God. And it's good, so good that God says very good as they live and work together. But perhaps you're thinking to yourself, why would God forbid them to eat from the tree of knowledge, of the knowledge of good and evil? That seems very unfair. Why would he want to keep them, if you like, in the dark? Well, that was exactly the first lie 
of Satan. This accuser of the brethren, this adversary of God, this one who seeks to take men and women away from God and to himself. Well, he came in the garden and he said exactly that. Why would God not want you to eat from this tree? The only reason could be that God doesn't want you to become like him. He knows on the day that you eat of this tree, you will be like him. Your shackles will be gone. You will no longer have to submit to him. You can be your own person. Who needs God? You can be God. And that was the original lie. And the original sin was to believe it. To believe that we can be equal, stand on equal footing with God. And our first parents bought it. Hook, line, and sinker. How is God going to react? Well, God who is creator, God who is incredibly personal, draws near to Adam and Eve. He knows what has happened. He is all-knowing. And he walks through the garden and says, where are you? Where are you? All of our theology can be summed up almost in that, that line, where are you? Where are you? Because it speaks of God who looks for the lost rebel. It speaks of God who comes near, who wants to buy back, who wants to redeem, who loves. Adam, where are you? And then it became very obvious what had happened. Adam is ashamed and Adam is angry and Adam blames someone for his disobedience. That's what happens next. Adam blames someone for his disobedience. And that is just like us. Our first parents fell for the lie that we can be like God or we can live without God. And so do we. And then when we're caught out, when our world comes crashing down like a house of cards, we look for someone to blame. And more often than not, we shake our fists at God and say, you are to blame. That's what Adam did. He said, it was the woman that you put here with me. It's your fault, God. If you hadn't given me this woman, then I wouldn't have been seduced. I, I, it blames God. How often 
do we do that? God is loving, is kind, is full of compassion. He came looking, but he has to bring forth judgment because God is a judge. So God is creator. He's incredibly personal. He is relational. He longs to be intimately involved in our lives. And he is judge. This is a theme that goes on throughout the Bible. We see it again and again and again as God brings righteous judgments to the earth on people, on nations, on situations again and again and again. God is shown not to have any favourites but to judge justly and fairly even though his heart aches with love and compassion, there has to be a just recompense for disobedience. There has to be. Otherwise, there would be no restraint in our actions if we thought we could do whatever we liked without any comeback. We would just go crazy. And so God always brings a just judgment. This is Isaiah 33, verse 22. It is beautiful. It's like a creed written about 700 BC. It says this, the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. What a beautiful verse. What incredible depths. We have this truth about who God is that we see backed up again and again and again in stories throughout the Bible. And so God who is our judge, judges Adam and Eve, and he expels them from the Garden of Eden. The reason he gives is that he doesn't want them eating from the tree of life, which is in the garden. This tree that would give them eternal life. The problem being that they would have eternal life with the consequences of their rebellion and the fall remaining upon them. Their decaying, dying bodies, their rebellious, sinful selves living forever would be a fate worse than death. And so they're expelled from the Garden of Eden. But before God does that, Creator God stoops down and makes a sacrifice. He kills an animal. God had said, on the day you eat of this fruit, you will truly die. You will surely die. And of course, spiritually, they died. The devil had said, you won't die. Spiritually, they died. And actually, they deserved death. 
for their rebellion. It would be within God's right to start again. But he loved Adam and Eve. He cared for them deeply. And so instead of them dying, an animal is killed by God in their place. The animal is skinned. And Adam and Eve wear the first clothes on earth. God is creator. God is relational. God is lawgiver. Do not eat from this one tree. God is righteous judge. It's incredible. That verse, Isaiah chapter 33, verse 22. Let's read it again. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. So another thing we see about God is that he is king. He is Lord over all. He is not subject to the rise and the fall of nations or finances or stock markets or weather or anything else that we are. God is king over it, above it, Lord of it. The trouble with humanity is that this indwelling pride to be our own God continued. God himself would be the king of the nation of Israel. But the people of Israel said, we, we don't want God as a king. We want to have a king ourselves, just like the nations around us. They all have kings. We want our own earthly king. And God said, if you have your own earthly king, he, he'll be like every other king. He will take your children to be soldiers or in his harem. You will have to pay him taxes. You will have to give him that which you work for. Your life will not be your own. It will belong to him. But people said we still want an earthly king. This is something that continues all through history. And actually, it's true of each one of us. We want someone human to take care of us, to call the shot, someone we can trust in, hope in, some kind of mediator between us and God so we don't have to deal with him ourselves. But Isaiah makes it clear that God truly is king. The final phrase in this beautiful word from Isaiah 33, verse 22, is he is our king. He will save us. 700 years before an angel will appear to a man named Joseph. Now, in the story, Joseph 
It's a true story, by the way. It's not a fairy tale. In the story, Joseph has found out that his fiance, the one he's pledged to be married to, is pregnant. And obviously, as every one of us would think if the person we were pledged to be married to was pregnant and we knew it wasn't us, we would come to the conclusion that she'd slept with someone else. And of course, Joseph was heartbroken. But Joseph, we're told, is a good man, a righteous man. And he decides in his own heart to divorce Mary, break the betrothal, break the engagement quietly. So she's put to no shame. She'll be able to go and live with her family, have the baby. Maybe they will pretend that it's a brother or sister. He decides to divorce her quietly. But as he's sleeping one night, he is awoken by an angel who appears to him and says these words. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. You shall call him Jesus, because he will save people from their sins. These people who for thousands of years since the birth of Adam have constantly and consistently rebelled against God, who have sinned against God, will be saved from their sins. The original sin in the garden will be overturned by this one. So you are to call him Jesus. But that's not all. Matthew tells us why. That's the what. He tells us the why. Verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to the prophet. It's the prophet Isaiah again. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is quite incredible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He was relational. He walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. And here we are, thousands of years later, with the rebellion and the sin of God's people that has brought just judgment again and again and again is the promise that God 
will bring this one called Jesus who will rescue people from their sins, who will be God with us. Who will walk again on the earth as he did in the garden long ago. He will dwell with them. John puts it like this. He will tabernacle. He will put up his tent among them. This is quite incredible. God himself will draw near in his son, Jesus Christ. Remember Elohim, God's plural, three persons, one being. We're seeing that happen before our very eyes. And we know the story and we'll be celebrating it in a month or so. As Jesus is born and he grows up and he begins teaching and he says some of the most incredible things that have ever been said. Like, son, your sins are forgiven. He will do incredible things. He will heal the sick, give sight to the blind, legs to the lame. He will call forth Lazarus from the tomb. He will say, I and the Father are one. As John chapter 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. This is what he said in the context. The Pharisees are there. The Jewish teachers are there. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Jesus has been demonstrating how he is the shepherd from the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want. And he said, that is me. That is who I am. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. Did you hear that? I give them eternal life. That thing, the tree of life that they were forbidden from eating because they would be in this fallen state. Jesus says, I will give it to them. I will be that tree of life for them. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Do you want to know what happened next? The Jews picked up stones to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. Which one of these are you going to stone me for? The Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, a mere man, make yourself God. These first century Jews, these scribes, these Pharisees, they know much more than most of our world will ever admit that Jesus Christ is God, one with the Father, one 
with the Holy Spirit. You make yourself God, they say, and they get ready to stone him. It's not the only time that he said he and God are one, he and the Father are one. Listen to this. This is from John chapter 14, verses 8 and 9. Philip says to Jesus, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Let us see him. But Jesus says in John 14, verse 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He walked with them in the cool of the day. He walked with them throughout the streets of first century Jerusalem. God came near. But there was a plan. And this plan was hatched that Jesus would die. It wasn't a plan of the Romans. It wasn't even a plan of the Jews, although they all had their part to play in it. The plan was God's, with the full agreement of Jesus. Jesus came to save. He said things like this. The Son of Man, speaking about himself, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. Just like that animal killed in the garden. Just as when Adam and Eve sinned, this animal died in their place. So will the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, die in their place to redeem them, to ransom them, to buy them back. Buy them back from the judgment, the righteous judgment of God. To buy them back from that. This is what Hebrews writes about him. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Listen to this. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. We've come full circle. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. Through whom? Jesus. Through whom? God created the world. But that's still not enough for this writer. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand 
of the majesty on high. Did you hear that? After making purification for sins. So let's just go backwards a little bit. Call him Jesus because he will rescue people from their sins. Let's go back to Isaiah 33, 22. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, the Father. This is incredible. How? How did he make the purification for sins? By that death. That death. Just like the animal in the garden. Jesus would die in the place of the human race for their sin. For you. If you believe in him. If you trust him. If you make him your Lord. And Savior, who is God? He, he is creator. He is relational. He is personal. He is judge. He is lawgiver. He is king. He is Savior. He can be known by the name Jesus. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We call on him. We call on him now. Lord God Almighty, have mercy on me, a sinner. Amen. Thank you for listening to Words of Welcome. For new episodes and more, please visit welcomebaptistchurch.uk.